Welcome to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with experts and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. In this episode, we hear part two of the conversation between Josh Weyer and J.P. Sharp, where they discuss the current and future state of value-based care, including primary and specialty care, and the recently released Making Care Primary Payment Model. You've recently, in your career, focused on um, integration of of behavioral health with primary care. Uh, Can you speak to a little bit how critical and important that is uh, on this path to transformation and alternative pot, uh, uh, payment models um, and those challenges with access to behavioral health and, and the finances of behavioral health care. Yeah, glad you bring that up. It, it's, uh, it is a trend and for a reason is that our kind of thinking, I think it's caught on in this kind of evolution of behavioral health being much more central to healthcare and not the siloed thing. And, and that's just a, a vestige of history is that we as uh, people in healthcare and in America just you know, drew a line there and said, here's physical healthcare over here and there was behavioral healthcare over there and they were siloed off and behavioral healthcare uh, was often more stigmatized. And so it got the, the short end of the stick when it came to attention and funding and innovation. And so it, it's, it's only through kind of a, a snowballing of research and uh, public momentum and acceptance of this where stigma of behavioral health and treatment mm-hmm. associated with it is, is being reduced. Not, it's, it's absolutely still there, but just better understanding of it. And it's, it's, Incorporation into physical health is is twofold. It's both from just an evidentiary standpoint and clinical is that they are linked. Just the the uh, you know, behavioral health impact. If you have say depression, your physical health. If you have say diabetes, those are related. Uh, you know, if not like directly in a physiological mechanism, but rather say if your if depression goes unchecked, you're less likely take care of your diabetes and your physical health, uh, take your meds, see your doctor, what have you. And those things, uh, it's a compounding, exacerbating effect. And so the thought now is that, hey, these are these things are so intertwined that mm-hmm. uh, evidence suggests treating behavioral health uh, you know, issues first and alongside primary care issues is going to result in better care. And then kind of the other is just like purely logical and from a patient perspective, like, you know, you at a human level, like we don't separate these things. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm not going to just say, oh, my knee hurts and like stop there. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to be like, well, you know, I'm a bit stressed out right now. I've got a lot of things going and, and, uh, you know, maybe feeling a bit down from X, Y, or Z reasons. And you know what, like, my knee hurts and I wish I could run a little bit further than I did last weekend. And so, you know, uh-huh. it's like, that's, that's like what 
you know, our life experiences. It's not siloed like we've kind of set up the healthcare system to do. So how can we kind of design the system to better appreciate like all of these things at a, you know, patient experience level as well? Right. Yep, that's the question and um, an important one, particularly. Um, appreciate you you talking about the the stigma and the importance of the behavioral health. I know it's an important um, area for you, and I think uh, an important one that we get right as we think about this transformation. It's critically important. So I'm going to ask you to look into your your crystal ball here a little bit. Um, where do you think in the next five years, let's say um, five to 10 years, where will the focus and value-based care be in your opinion? Um, will it still be in the the primary care space primarily, or do you think it'll shift to um, uh, specialty is obviously one it's already beginning to, to talk about, but just your thoughts on where you think this uh, transformation will, will be in the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh the the primary care is not going to go away i think it's it's caught on enough and people have realized that and that's going to be more about incorporating it into more and more corners of of america uh and making sure that about what like what value-based primary care actually means that that is for like actually entrenched and made accessible to as many corners of our our country as as it can be, but that it goes from you know, systems with a lot of resources and uh, some groups that have, that have aggregated, uh, you know, folks like Analidate or, or like you guys with, with Chess to say, all right, we're we've got tools, we're going to help you get there. So so that's the cutting edge of where you have you know innovative groups focused on this. To how do we get it to like everywhere? So I think that's really what's happening now and what's going to continue to be on the horizon is just how does primary care change for the masses from what we've learned so far today. The exciting like new part is uh, looking at the rest of healthcare. Uh, there was a bit of this, and maybe it was a misconception that like, oh, we just solve, like we apportion all the risk at the primary care level and the rest takes care of itself and people figure it all out. To, and and so that's that's not reality. It is, uh, you've got multiple parties. They're not all sitting under the same tent all the time. Usually they're, they're not. And so you need to bring everybody under the tent so that you're not just aligning a payer and a primary care provider you're aligning a pair and a primary care provider and the cardiologist and you know the mental health professional and whoever else you've got you know on the list and that they're all actually have the same you know, aligned incentives for cost and quality outcomes and for the most part that's not the case right now so so primary care providers may you know look at a list of people they're referring to in their network and they're going to try to find the best ones but how they're doing that is still an evolving uh, you know, science. But but even when they do make that referral to somebody they know and trust as a great cardiologist, is that cardiologist, how are they going to get paid? It's usually the vast majority of those cardiologists are still getting paid on a straight fee-for-service basis. And so that's that's really where we have to get to is how do you start to – it's more complex – but how do you start to break open that 
kind of single distribution of risk and responsibility to the primary care provider to say, all right, how do we open that up and have the cardiologist share with the primary care provider in a way that all the parties are aligned and incentivized to, to do the, the work together towards the outcomes. And so I think that's, and then multiply that times number of specialties down the list. Cardiology is a big one because of the, the costs associated with that and the number of people that, that right. need that care. But again, you know, diabetes has been one. Kidney's been a little bit out in front where there are a lot of new innovative kidney models that have been going for several years. So I think maybe take that approach and say, what have we done with kidney care? Are there other specialties like that? Or is there another way that it needs to happen that's somewhere in between? Uh, and so that's, I think, exploring all these different models and different ways to incorporate these really key specialties into the, the overall risk environment. Well stated. Um, it'll be a it'll be a challenge, but it'll be a, it'll be a fun one. Um, as you uh, stated at the beginning, this uh, this is challenging work, but fun work, and that the challenge is part of the fun. So um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how we go about addressing uh, and incorporating other specialties into this work going forward. JP, you you mentioned about independent primary care. Um, and and the focus there, as you're aware, CMMI just announced a new model to begin next year called Making Care uh, Primary. Uh, that's really focusing on supporting those those that are serving vulnerable populations, rural communities, um, and they've begun to introduce some um, some levers that will help adoption and help that speed of adoption. I know you've written about this. Um, before about how advanced primary care can be um, uh, adopted and accelerated. What what are your thoughts? What are some of the things that you think are incentives that could be put into place for independent primary care to succeed in, in value? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a couple parts, which is uh, as you're alluding to, is how to help primary care be good at this and do it. And then there's also the because it's a CMMI model, what's going to generate the best results for the taxpayers mm. and total cost and quality of care. And so both of those things need to go in parallel. And that's where I think hopefully we'll yeah. learn more with this new model. In previous models, uh, CBC and CPC Plus, they were great tests. They you know, increased funding to primary care providers provide, you know, set out a bunch of targets and requirements and said, here's additional funding, additional opportunity, shared savings opportunities, et cetera, I think. But they were all, they were all upside and it was all new and additional things. And what you saw was, yeah, those providers, you know, overall improved uh, on a number of quality metrics, not all of them across the board. There were maybe too many metrics. That's a, you know, another conversation in Canada's there. But I think you know, like overall general like quality improvement, capability improvement, and advancement of the space through the funding. However, the the costs really weren't materially different. Uh, and they may have even gone up a little bit, uh, overall total cost. So I think agree that primary care is underfunded. So primary care costs we should see go up 
But the goal of that would be they have to come from somewhere else. They have to be you know, uh, reduced uh, through those other acute episodes, ER, inpatient spending, what have you, where we know there's preventable, higher priced, higher cost things that we can avoid through better primary care. And so that's that's the part that didn't quite you know hit in previous models. So I think that's that's really where it'll look is can you really take this funding and direct it in the most useful way possible so that it results across the board, you know, at a population, across organizations, across geographies way that generates results. There's certainly when you look at any of those previous programs, you're going to see a bunch of different spikes where oh, these providers over here did great things, had interventions, saved a bunch of money. You know, these over here didn't. And you know, it, it all evened out to be kind of a push. So I think what we need is what kind of model and program and organization and supports are going to like move the whole needle you know, not just have, you know, a few people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with successes and a few kind of flipping a coin. Uh, so I think that's where the real innovation and, and, and uh, you know, horizon is in primary care is like, all right, like, who's really good at this? And part mm-hmm. of that is, this will be, you know, I don't know, maybe controversial. Some people, maybe some people just don't like it, but, but having the downside risk component is something we did learn through the CMMI process. Having downside risk actually is a better incentive for behavior change than pretty much anything else in in the models. And that's because if it's a one-sided model in perpetuity and you're not forced to to think about your outcomes that you're generating swinging both ways, then you can just do what you're doing before flip a coin, maybe you get some bonus dollars at the end of the day, maybe you don't, uh, but it doesn't actually compel any of the change that we want to see. And so that's that's really one of the major takeaways from all of those years of, of programs. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Thank you so much, JP Sharp. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Move to Value podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions, where our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. As always, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to sign up for the email list, as well as check out all the resources in the show notes. If you are interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across social media and leave a rating and review. See you next time.